The preaching of God's word is in Exodus 34, particularly at verse 5. So two weeks ago, we began a series on the Lord's self-proclamation. And we saw in Exodus 33 that the Lord had said that he would make all his goodness pass before thee, speaking to Moses, and that he would proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. Now we read, and for the sake of context, verses 5 and following of Exodus 34, the fulfillment of that promise. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped so on. It's particularly verse 5 that we give our attention to this evening. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, as by experience, we're quite familiar with the fact that when children hear adults speak about things that are above the level of understanding of the children, there is something of a confusion. The ideas themselves are advanced beyond their own learning and understanding, and even the very terms are far beyond their ability to make sense. The ease with which the adults converse is something of a puzzle to the children. It demands that if the child is to understand that the adult, as it were, lowers himself to explain in ways that the child can understand the things that they've been talking about. Now, the fact is, there are some things that adults talk about that children, even with the best of teachers, cannot fully grasp because there's a number of things to learn first. And yet, it is able still to be somewhat better understood when an adult takes the time, often to stoop to the level of the child, and use expressions and comparisons and other such things in order for that the child may somewhat understand the truth. So if the child's to understand, the adult must draw near and make plain what is discussed. Now, this is true about mere creatures. So think about what goes on in that moment. A creature whose understanding is limited is conversing with another who has similar understanding but which is limited and then speaks to another creature whose understanding is limited and far less developed and now this creature who is limited is going to speak to another about that thing. Well, how much far more necessary is it if God is to be known by us? He who is unlimited he who is absolutely transcendent of all of our little 
understandings that we are constrained to join with the scripture to say that even at the clearest understanding we attain, that lo, these are a hiding of his ways. It is astounding to become acquainted with the biographies of godly men and women who live for many years and at the end of their life to find them wrestling with how little they know of God. And yet it is the common fact. What we see here is the Lord uh, dealing with the uh, littleness of man in a gracious way. It is that we see here the Lord descends. Notice the text that it's the Lord who takes the action. Moses draws near according to his, uh, the Lord's command. And now it's God who uh, draws near to him. And so what happens? Well, notice three things mentioned in verse 5. It's Jehovah who descends in the cloud. It is Jehovah who stood with him, that is with Moses, there. It is Jehovah who then not only stands, but proclaims his name. So Moses is there passive. He's there receiving He's not the one attaining to anything of his own uh, approach, but rather it is God who is the one doing all things. God is the one coming near. God is the one who is making known his, himself and proclaiming all the truth. And this in accordance to his grace. So what we find here is that the Lord is graciously drawing near to make known himself and particularly in accordance with what we considered last time to make known his grace. This is important because what's taking place is not just, remember last time we talked about the difference between general revelation and special revelation. God's not simply confirming what is generally known by his general revelation that God is God is almighty, powerful, eternal, and so on. But he's drawing near, specifically revealing his grace, his mercy, his love. And this is, of course, an act of God condescending. Now, we use the term condescending in a negative way. Don't be condescending to me. What we mean by that is actually sort of a double reference. So to be condescending is to draw down with somebody. When we say, don't be condescending to me, we're saying, don't treat me like I'm beneath you or like I'm a little child to whom you have to condescend. Though that's the way it's used, the the word itself simply means to descend to be with somebody. And we see that literally the Lord descended, but we also see that in the very essence of all that's taking place. The Lord is declaring his love, declaring his mercy, declaring his grace. And he's doing so in a way that brings him down to be with Moses. This is tremendously clear in this passage. And yet it's most desperately needed to begin to understand what follows. Because what happens is when we start to think about God's grace and his mercy we tend to think, what's the big deal? Or we think, well, of course that's what God is. 
And of course we deserve these things. Of course it's the fact that since he's been kind here, there, and everywhere else, that he should be kind to me as well. But the context helps us see how extraordinary the declaration and proclamation of his love and mercy is. That he is drawing down himself from heaven to declare to us his mercy. You can see this very clearly displayed in multiple ways in Matthew and chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, you have the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have as well, John recognizing this. Notice in Matthew 3 at verse 13, Jesus comes to be baptized of John. Verse 14, but John forbade him. What's he doing? He's saying, no, not at all. I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it, that is, allow it, to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Here is a display of this condescension. But it goes further. After he's baptized, what happens? Heavens are opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you have multiple levels of this very truth, as God is, as it were, condescending so clearly to say, Look at the Savior and perceive well what is going on here. What a testimony! Of this. Now, as a quick aside, we often will speak of God humbling himself. Technically, that only respects the second person of the Trinity. So he humbled himself to be made man. The Father didn't humble himself, the Spirit didn't humble himself. We saw, for instance, in Philippians chapter 2, that speaking of Christ, the Son of God, he humbled himself. He brought himself low and he took to himself another nature. The Father didn't do that. The Spirit didn't do that. Only the person of the Son of God humbled himself. And yet, the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, condescends to speak and make known to us and work with us. So think of this. The Father speaks to us. The fact that He speaks to us any word that is not you are now condemned forever is a testimony of His condescending to us. The Son, both in His humiliation, but also, as we could argue, is the person who appears to Moses here as He comes and it would seem as a Christophany where He stands with Him and fellowships with Him, but Whatever one's view of that, we could see that elsewhere. He is regularly declaring and speaking, and his incarnation is a tremendous aspect of that condescension. But the Spirit as well, who not only, as it were, illumines our minds, but works within us to open our understanding, convert our souls. All of this is a testimony of the triune God drawing near to us, and for what purpose? but to make us know His grace. And so keep this in mind throughout our study and series before us that it is only because 
the Lord has graciously condescended to be made known to us that we know anything of his grace, his goodness, and of his salvation. Well, consider then two things as we carry on with this truth. Firstly, the need for condescension. And secondly, the way of condescension. The need and the way. So we know by nature that there's a need for one smarter than we are to condescend to our level of understanding to explain. This is not just true of adults and children. This is true of adults with other adults because no man or woman has studied all things and no man even in the same field as another has all the same experiences and insight. And so there's a need for one who has greater and clearer knowledge to draw near to another to explain it. So when you get to higher level classes in perhaps college, university, or graduate school. You have those who are specialists in their field. And what are they doing? They're explaining things, if a teacher at all, at a level that those who don't have the same degree of understanding would attain to that degree of understanding. So they're condescending. And so we see this just fundamentally according to nature, that when one knows more, They have to stoop down in order to explain. Think about learning a language. So if someone knows whatever language it might be, Portuguese, Spanish, etc., if they are fluent in that and you're interested in learning that language, they don't just rattle off in that language everything that's going on, but they break it down. They might give you little phrases. They might point to something and say the name and then have you repeat it. And then over time, as that develops, you become more and more able to speak that language. Why? Because the one who has great understanding both of the language and how to teach learning the language is then helping you along to learn it. This is true of everything from mechanics to engineering to every aspect of human learning. But here we're talking not about our human growth and men stooping to us to teach us, but rather God condescending to us. Why is there a need for it? Well, one and fundamental essential fact is this. God infinitely transcends everything about us. There's nothing in our mind that closes the gap upon the excellence of God himself. Here's the point. As a believer, your future is certain. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, this is certain. 10,000 years from now, you'll have spent the greater part of that 10,000 years in the glorious presence of God and you will have grown how can we measure this exponentially more in your understanding of God your affections delighting in God your presence in the glorious presence of God everything perfectly at one growing maturing and so on without any stumbling and sin and yet here's something to remember you'll never have attained anything closer to the excellence of God himself. You'll never have closed the gap on what presently exists because he is infinite in glory. Though it may be true and right to say your understanding will be more in accordance with, it would be untrue to say 
that you have made true progress in becoming more, as it were, like God in the literal sense, because he's infinite. Notice we consider this passage some weeks back, Isaiah 57 and verse 15, how God speaks of himself. He says of himself that he is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Our minds are so weak. And yet, if we would meditate on these simple expressions that God gives of himself to us, we would begin to understand this fundamental truth. He is the high and lofty one. There's no one else high and lofty. There's no one else who is at that level. There's no one else that is like him. This is why theologians will speak at times rather technically about, you know, there's not a genus known as divine of which God is one species of the genus, you know. So there's animal life and there's species of animals and so on. Well, God is not a genus. He is the eternal one. There's not divinity abstract and then God. God is the glorious one, transcendent above all things. If ever we begin to become, as it were, casual in our thoughts of God, it would do us well to turn to the book of Job and to consider particularly the whole book, but particularly verse 30 or chapter 38 and following where it's stated that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? All of his counselors, Job himself, perhaps the only one that is uh, removed from this, maybe Elihu, but whatever the case, notice how God has stated. He says, Verse 4, where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. We talk about sometimes people being put in their places if that's a bad thing. God is putting Job in his place. Now think of that for a moment because Job is in the extremity of affliction. Isn't that telling? Job is in deeper straits than you or I are. He's in deeper affliction than you or I have been. His body is literally covered with sores from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. He's using a clay pot, a piece of it, to scrape the sores of his body. He's been ridiculed by his so-called friends, and he is struggling in all of this, and yet he's entertained this thought that maybe there's something that's not entirely right about these circumstances. And God doesn't initially come to Job and say, this is, I mean, you're in a tough spot. He actually comes lovingly, but soberly against Job. Who is this that darkens counsel? I'll ask you questions. I'll demand of thee and answer thou me. You start to see something, the God that is put forth by even broad evangelicalism is often not the same image of God we get in the scriptures. 
God is transcendently glorious. And when we try to make him as if he is our buddy or grandfatherly figure, we don't honor the condescension of God. We dishonor the condescension because the one condescending is the glorious God who transcends all things. And he goes on. And what is Job's response? Job doesn't say, is anyone paying attention at the cruel anger of God? No. When Job finally is, speaks a breath, what's his word? Notice Job 40 verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. So soon as God gives the slightest display of his transcendence to Job, Job now sees. Now, Job was a righteous man. This is declared at the beginning and at the end of the book. But Job, in his affliction, had begun to entertain thoughts about God that were wrong. And God, whose name is Jealous, would set the matter straight and say, let's remember something, Job. The one about whom you're entertaining these wayward thoughts is glorious transcendent, good, perfect, sovereign. Keep it going. So you read from Job 38 onward through the rest of this book, and you'll realize God is making very plain this truth. He is most transcendent. Related to that, the need for this condescension is man is little Think about your origin. Go back to conception in the womb. There you are, just a group of cells. We don't deny at all the image of God, but we're acknowledging that the image of God is placed upon an almost invisible mass of cells. And you go back to your ultimate origin. And what is that? Before God breathed his spirit into Adam, Adam was simply sculpted dirt. And death confirms this. Once you die, your body starts to break apart and decompose. And it disintegrates. That means its integration as one harmonious group, systems working together, breaks up. And eventually, given enough time, will simply return to the earth, dust. That's what you and I are. But it's not just our origin that helps us see that. It's the contrast between God and man. Notice in Romans chapter 9, Paul, once again, it's astounding, isn't it? In these moments of declaring God's grace, it is... Then that the astounding distance between God and man is asserted. So we see that in Exodus 34. Notice Romans chapter 9. When Paul has just mentioned in Romans 8 about nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He asserts the sovereignty of God with such unrelenting clarity. 
finally in verse 18, he says, Therefore he hath mercy, on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? There's a truth, of course, to say that many of the sins of our age have misjudged the dignity that belongs to man. So people do undignified things with their body, with their time, with all sorts of things. But it's also true to say that men have thought a greater dignity to be man's than really is. Both of those are true. And here, Paul is challenging that temptation to think that we stand in any sense on an even field with God. Who are you, man, to reply to whom? God. Man? God. Creature? Creator. A piece of clay versus the potter. And so what's happening Paul's getting us clear in something. As dignified as we are, as astoundingly wonderful as our very bodies and souls working together are, as uh, tremendous as society is and all of the things that make us wonder, the accomplishments and so on of mankind, yet when it comes to comparing man with God, it has to be a contrast, not a comparison. Your man... Your clay, your nothing compared to God. Now, before we say, wait a second, the Bible says a lot about man and his love, we're going to get to that. But in actuality, to understand the wonder of his love, we first have to understand what man is in himself. That he is infinitely beneath God. There's nothing in man that makes him of his nature worthy of a word from God. Nothing. Nothing in you, in me, in all mankind together demands that God so much as concerns himself with the slightest issue of your life. Nothing. Why? Because he is infinitely glorious and you are a temporal piece of dirt. What makes this all the more apparent is that you and I, since Adam's fall, stand not as just creatures, ordered creatures, creatures dignified in the Lord's ordering of them, bearing His image, but what stands out is we have sinned. Man stands now as a sinner. So he's not just one whose essence is infinitely beneath God, but in his infinite beneathness of God, he's had the audacity to rebel against God. 
So with this before us, think for a moment, what is it that God owes any of us? What word does God owe us? With the feeling of an almost sense of indifference, the thing that you and I deserve is go to hell. That's what we deserve. That's the only word that you and I deserve. Because he who made us in his image and provided us the rich provision of the Garden of Eden and all of this life and so on finds us as those who have rebelled against him. So for men to say, well, God needs to be fair. God needs to give me what I deserve and all these kinds of things is to miss this fundamental point. If ever we're going to hear of a gracious word from God, it will only be as he graciously draws near to us in mercy. This is the point. This is the wonder. This is what made Job say, behold, I am vile. This is what made Peter say after seeing the miraculous display of Christ's glory, depart from me, for I'm a wicked man. This is what made Isaiah say when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, woe am I, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. This is what made John the apostle exiled on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God, to see Christ and to fall at his feet as dead. This is the repeated fact of even holy men who come face to face with an extraordinary revelation of God. They realize, I have no right here. I have no natural terms of peace here. I'm now in the presence of one who is beyond my comprehension, glorious. This is why God said earlier to Moses, no one can see my face and live. No one. Now take that and compare it with the way the world thinks about God. And dare we say, take that and compare it with what we often think about God. In our trials, we think, well, if God were kind, he'd do fill in the blank. In our sorrows, well, if God were merciful, he would fill in the blank. Not realizing that a single word from this holy, majestic, and glorious God of any kindness is infinitely above what any of us deserve. A single word of kindness transcends what we deserve. So you see the need for condescension. But secondly, notice the way of condescension. And hopefully this will heal by God's grace the wounds that are open when we see our own sins. Because notice this, all of that being true, notice what happens. In God's mercy, He truly draws near. This is astounding all of a sudden. And you start to see when you actually do a little bit of the effort to understand a bit more about God and his glory, you start to see how full and uh, perfect 
his mercy is. Notice Jehovah, verse 5, descended in the cloud. If he had sent an ambassador, it would have been a privilege, right? If God had said, I'm going to send my angel Gabriel, I'll even do what's more. I'll send a thousand angels and proclaim to you the truth about me. This would be beyond what we deserve, wouldn't it? But here it's God himself who draws near. He descends in the cloud. He stood with Moses there. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is God drawing near to Moses. God drawing near in wondrous mercy. And remember, all in the context of the fact that he's about to proclaim to Moses this disclosure of his mercy and grace. And so the most needful thing we have If ever we're going to have peace or comfort, God actually takes upon himself to draw near to us to make plain and understood. Whereas he could have come near and said, it's over, you're done. He comes near to disclose his mercy, his salvation, his grace. And this is the fact throughout the scriptures. I think even at the very beginning So soon as Adam and Eve had sinned, what happens? The Lord then comes in the midst of the day, in the cool of the day, in the garden, calls out for Adam. And Adam and Eve, of course, have hidden themselves. But what happens? Well, the Lord reproves them quite plainly. He gives a a word of judgment against Adam and Eve. But he also himself is the one who declares that there is a seed to come who will save. And it's the Lord himself who slays an animal as a sacrifice and covers Eve and Adam together. The Lord does that from the very beginning. There's a minister, I think it was Andrew Gray, who said that as earth declared rebellion against heaven, heaven declared mercy to the earth. And this is the message throughout the scripture. God is again and again coming. Perhaps this is one reason, it's not the reason, but at least a circumstance perhaps is a better word, as to why we become casual with God's mercy. Because the scriptures are so full of it. The scriptures are pouring it on to us. But instead of that causing us to be casually indifferent, or as it were, not concerned or worshiping our God with reverence and awe, as we're told in the book of Hebrews, it cools us into this thought that God's just sort of like this and, and, and generous and we can just sort of live our life carefree. But instead we ought to see, no, it's that God draws near himself to take the most astounding truth that God who is transcendent, and think of this, What do the angels who have rebelled against God know of God personally, but his transcendence, period? Because all they know is their condemnation. That's all they know. That's the only message they will personally ever experience. But to us, the good news has come. And who is it that has drawn near to proclaim it? It's God himself. Well, this is true most perfectly in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes and what is it he proclaims? 
he goes and proclaims the gospel, the good news, of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is nigh. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is with man. All of this proclamation is proclaimed by whom? By Christ, the Son of God incarnate. And his whole life is a proclamation where he himself has drawn near. You can see something of an anticipation even in this verse. Jehovah descended in the cloud. Well, it's not perfect, of course, is it? But what happens at the incarnation? Jehovah descends, not Father in spirit, but the second person, the Son of God, does indeed descend. He's born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And he is indeed standing on the earth. All this wondrous testimony of God truly drawing near. So we think of Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But likewise in Matthew, it says that his name will be Emmanuel. And what does that word mean? God with us. God really draws near to be with a people who have rebelled against him. There are scenes in the scripture which astonish us. One that ought to do so is when Christ is being tried, so-called, and he is struck in the face for, as it were, speaking of the high priest. Speak to the high priest that way. And whose face is struck? The face of the Son of God incarnate, who is the high priest. We see something of our own natural affections when Peter draws the sword and swings at this servant, cuts off his ear. But think of Christ's words. You know, put up your sword. Don't you understand? If I asked the Father, he would give me legions of angels right now. There's something of appearing in for a moment at the astonishing fact of Christ condescending, humbling himself to be with us. The angels, in other words, are as it were, their hands on their swords, ready to leap to action. How dare these creatures, these dust-made creatures, assault the King of glory this way? But he has drawn near for what purpose? Not just to testify, but to fulfill the proclamation of the Lord God, merciful, gracious, And so on. We don't have much more time to carry on with this, but notice just as one aspect of his drawing near, he drew near in the incarnation. Do you know that he draws near in the preaching of his word every single time? Every time his word is preached, God has drawn near to those who have heard it. We get a glimmer of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Speaking of Christ Jesus, he is our peace, who hath made both one. Verse 15, having abolished the flesh in his flesh, the enmity. Verse 16, that he might reconcile both, that is Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body. Verse 17, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and them that were nigh. For through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, As has been mentioned before, Jesus never set one 
of his incarnate feet in the city of Ephesus? How did he come and preach to them in Ephesus? It's because, as he said at uh, uh, the Great Commission, go where? Throughout the nations, to the nations. And he says, commanding them whatsoever I, or, or teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. But then he also says, lo, I am with you always. What's going on? Christ is saying that when his ministers preach the word, he's there with them. We get a picture of that in Revelation chapter 1, where he's the one holding the seven stars in his right hand, and the stars are the ministers of the church. He's holding them, he's using them, he's planning them, he's giving them, he's preaching through them, so that when his word is preached, fundamentally what's going on is Christ is preaching. This is why the ordinances of God deserve such reverence, not because of some superstitious magic, but because these are the chosen means by which Christ meets with his people. This is why the Lord's Supper is so special to us, not just us, but all Christians, because it's one of those means by which Christ meets with his people. Who is it that meets with us? It's Christ. Who is it that preaches? It's Christ. Christ truly draws near so that we truly can say, tonight we heard Christ. Isn't this what Christ himself says? My sheep hear my voice. When his word goes forth, his sheep hear it and they follow. Well, there's more to say, but for the sake of time, notice as well the way of condescension. Something to note that he also does so by means of a mediator. This goes a little bit beyond we have time for, but notice Jehovah descends in the cloud, stood with him there, proclaimed the name of the Lord, but notice very quickly, it's not with all Israel that he stands, is it? It's with Moses. And what is Moses supposed to do? Moses is supposed to take the revelation God has given him and carry it to the others. Now this is important in many ways, not least of which Moses himself indicates in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like unto me shall God raise up. Him shall ye hear, right? Well, notice what is mentioned in the book of Acts in chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's answer. And he says in verse 37, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, etc. Stephen saying that Christ is the one that I'm proclaiming whom Moses, whom you claim to honor, already prophesied should come. He's the prophet to whom you must hear. What's he getting at? Christ is that mediator. And all of a sudden we see what Christ has said. You know, I've received of the Father what I declare to you. I've received of the Father what I'm making known to you. Christ is the essential mediator. That is, he is the one who is essentially one with God. He is God. But he's also essentially one with man since the incarnation. He is man. And think of what a wonder Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You know, there is uh, one God and one mediator between God and man, 
But how does he refer to Christ Jesus? Isn't it striking? The man, Christ Jesus. He actually emphasizes this humbling of Christ himself to bring man and God together by his revelation and his work. So God condescends and makes use of a mediator, all, of course, pointing to that great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brethren, much more could take our attention, but let us close by simply noting this, that as God transcends us infinitely, essentially infinitely so, yet he has truly drawn near to make known his grace and love, which is real. So when God comes, as we hope to consider in the coming weeks, declaring his name, remember who it is that declares it, the transcendent God. And yet remember as well what he declares of himself, merciful, gracious. There should be a sense, if we understand the basic teaching regarding God, we should say, is that real? This glorious God, is it real? that he is merciful and gracious, but instantly we should then embrace it. Of course it's real because this transcendent and glorious God is the one who has proclaimed it. It's not the imagination of men. It's not the deep longings of my soul. It's God himself who has said, I am merciful. I am gracious. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin." You see, all of this bolsters and strengthens a wonder of the grace of God. This God upon whom we have no claim in ourselves. This God who owes us absolutely nothing. Think of this for a moment. You buy a pack of paper, you write something on the paper, you throw the paper away, and you have no conscientious struggle with that. Oh, What am I supposed to do about this paper? You go to the beach, you form a sandcastle, you spend time on it, you're detailing different things, and then you laugh while you tear it down. There's no struggle in your conscience about that. There is a far greater difference between God and you than you and a piece of paper or you and the sandcastle. We have to get that in order to begin to understand the unfathomable depth of God's wondrous love that he should set it upon us and make us to know with a certainty that he sincerely cares for us, that he loves us such that he has sent his son. And when we start to grasp that, It's then that we'll start to understand, as Paul says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. This glorious God who is absolutely, eternally free in accordance to his nature, yet has sovereignly set his love upon me and proclaimed his love to me. Oh, whatever else I encounter in this life, I have been given the greatest, the highest privilege 
that ever anything could receive. What a blessing, dear ones, when once we understand the transcendence of God, to understand his condescension to make his love known to us through Christ. What a reproof it is if we ignore his kind drawing near to speak to us a word of mercy. How much more so if we take the Bible, which is full of this condescension, this loving testimony, and we think, well, I need something more. I need something better. What else could we receive? God has spoken to us of his love and mercy and forgiveness. So brethren, take up this wondrous, immeasurably rich, transcendent message of a transcendent God who has told us of his true kindness to us, all of which directs us to Christ. And in Christ do we find all of these things perfectly manifested, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, and ever rejoice to know that this has been proclaimed to you by God himself. Would you stand with me for prayer?